Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Father, we love your word, and we thank you so much that we have your word. It is life to us, Lord. It is a continuous fountain, and we open our heart. You feed us and make us strong, and you open our eyes. We are grateful for it, and we ask now for open eyes, open ears, and a tender heart. And I pray for the grace to let you speak your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll start at Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look again at another part aspect of the church at Pergamum. We're going through the churches right now in the book of Revelation. And to the angel of, verse 12, and the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know you dwell where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. We talked about overcoming strongholds. We looked at the fact that Pergamum was actually a satanic stronghold with the worship of the Antichrist spirit there through the, through the deification of the Roman emperor. And Domitian, by the way, who, became, who was emperor around this, probably the time this is being written, and uh, he considered himself divine. I mean, really, really believed it. And he demanded that all call him Lord and God, and uh, including his wife. No joke. And so you can imagine the climate this, these churches are facing. And Antipas clearly wouldn't say it. Verse 14 through 16 is what we're going to look at. But I have a few things against you. Because you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, does that strike your ear a little odd? I repent or I'm coming to you and I will make war against them. <laughs> if you don't repent, I'm going to beat them up. That's what he says, in effect. And we'll look at that and what that means. Who can blame the believers in Pergamum for being afraid? They never knew when they would be faced with the terrible choice. Worship Caesar or die. And who among us, 2,000 years later, is so sure of our own boldness, we feel qualified to condemn those who looked for a way of escape. The memory of Peter's bold assertions and subsequent denials of Jesus warn us that good intentions can melt away when face to face with danger. Confronted with violent death or at least being thrown out of our homes and family, we too might find ourselves looking for loopholes, ways to avoid confrontation, but still keep Jesus happy with us. We'd search for ways to live peacefully with our culture and yet still go to heaven. 
And into the urgency of that moment, it is likely that someone would rise up with a, quote, revelation from God, saying they had discovered a deeper truth, which would free us from having to make the tough choice. They would say that God is somehow okay with our doing what everyone else is doing. For instance, they might tell us that as long as we didn't really mean what we said, or enjoy what we were doing, or focused our mind on, the, on God while doing it, or tithed on the proceeds, he would look the other way. Just thought I'd throw that in. After all, it's what's in our heart that matters, not what we do with our bodies, right? When Jesus calls religious leaders Balaam, notice, notice there, verse 14, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. When he calls religious leaders Balaam, or over here in the message to Thyatira, in verse 20, he calls the prophetess there Jezebel. They were doing the same thing in Thyatira as Pergamum. Same problems are going on. He's talking about people who use spiritual authority to undermine the resolve of God's people to remain holy and loyal to him. In every generation, there will be prophets and prophetesses who claim to speak for God but are deceived or are not deceived and yet are willing to spiritually mislead believers for personal gain. It's a warning worth hearing because there are still people today willing to help us find loopholes to escape the cross, aren't there? What's the stumbling block? He, he says here, who, keep teaching Bala, who, uh, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. False prophets, false teachers put a stumbling block before the people of God. The believers in the first century... A major stumbling block was the daily pressure to participate in family and community events which centered around religion. The Greek and Roman gods were worshipped in every sort of gathering. To avoid being drawn into such worship, one had to stop attending important family events, weddings, funerals, holiday celebrations, and formal community gatherings which always included sacrificing to the local gods. And sexual activities were an essential part of some of the worship events. In the minds of those communities, for someone to refuse to participate would bring the anger of the gods on them all. Now you put yourself as a Christian in Pergamum. Your parents are going to the, the, the temple of Dionysus. They're gorging on raw meat and getting drunk until in their drunkenness they feel they are one spirit with Dionysus. Indeed, they probably were. And still are. That's the worship. The families, you're having a great holiday to, to Artemis. And everybody's gathering. Your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents, your brothers, your sisters. They're all going. Come on, come with us. You're always there. I can't go. I, I can't do that. What do you mean you can't do that? Every wedding, every funeral... Every gathering is going to have a religious center to it. Imagine the pressure on believers. What if you couldn't go and... Let's say you stepped out of Christianity and your family wants you to come to Christmas. Well, you know, they're going to read the Christmas story and sing Christmas carols and it's all about the birth of Jesus. And, 
And you're thinking, can I go and somehow not sing? And not, can I, can I somehow, I, I want to be with my family, but I can't join them in my, their religion. That's the pressure these people were under. And then when there's community gatherings, they are going to have a religion, they're going to offer to the gods. If you're in a, in, if you're in a worker's guild, I mean, you, 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 you make something, you're, part of, you're in a manufacturing thing, and, and you're in a guild, they're going to worship the gods. And you're all supposed to eat the meat and celebrate it. This was a huge issue for believers. Paul deals with the same matter. Paul's conclusion is you can eat the meat that was used in that temple when you buy it in the marketplace, but don't go into the temple and participate in the eating. That's your eating with demons. Stay out of the demons, but go ahead and have the meat in the butcher shop was Paul's conclusion to it. But they're dealing with this very thing. And let's, you know, if in that environment, they had sexual activities. And I'm, there was religious prostitution, believe it or not, part of their religious life. It was accepted. This was, this was the way it was. And so if you don't show up at our community events and take part in these activities, then the gods will be angry. And if they're angry, I'm not going to get a good harvest this year. I'm not going to let you, with your, with, your, with your Jesus, spoil my harvest, thank you very much. And so there's anger, there's persecution, there's hostility. They're throwing them out of the communities. They're, dis, they're disinheriting them. They can't go to family gatherings. And into that pain, somebody got a prophetic revelation. It's okay to go. You can do it. You can go and take part in these things. You can go and, and you can drink in the, and, and eat in those temples. And you can even do the sexual stuff. Just don't enjoy it. <laughs> Come on. There was something dumb like that. And somebody had a verse. You can see Paul struggling with it. All things are lawful. I don't think Paul says all things are lawful. That's absolutely a ridiculous statement. Of course they aren't all lawful. But he, then Paul is trying to keep pulling Corinth back going, yeah, but it's not profitable. <laughs> you know? Come on. All things aren't lawful. It's ridiculous. And so they, but somebody, they got a hold of, some, they got their quote, they got their verse, man. And they're, they're riding that thing all the way into the temple. Now they don't have to choose. Now they don't have to get pushed out of their workers' guild. Now they don't have to pay the price. Now they don't have to have a cross, see, because it's okay. We got a verse here. We got a prophecy. Jesus says it's okay. He's okay with us. He understands in our case. You ever heard anything like that? Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the heart and root of false prophecy. We'll do what we have to do. And, and the Bible's now, Jesus is going to make it clear that it often has to do with personal gain. The prophet really wants money or power or whatever. And we'll simply say what we need to say to get us to follow. Now, Jesus says here that this, the, the people were the followers of a prophet named Nicholas. Hopefully, this is not the, the, the early deacon. I, I'm sure it must not be. But Nicholas was teaching this. And, and in effect, Nicholas was another Balaam, is what Jesus is saying. He's doing to the, to the church the same thing Balaam did to Israel. Now, I'll just remind you a little bit about that. Followers of a man named Nic Nicholas were doing to the church in Pergamum the same thing that Balaam did to Israel. Balaam, as a prophet, was a prophet who lived in Mesopotamia but who knew the real God and had a real spiritual gift of prophecy. He is not a dud. The guy is a prophet. 
yet his heart remained gripped by the love of money. So you can have real spiritual gifts, you can know the real God and still have a corrupted heart. Imagine that. He wanted to use his spiritual gift to please certain people so he could get rich. Let's go back to Numbers 22. I'm not going to tell you the whole story. If you don't know the story of Balaam, it is one of the funnier stories in the Bible. And I'll give you the, verse, the chapters there. This is the one where, you know, the donkey talks to him and all. Oh, yeah, this, it's a great one. He, he, you watch this man just conflicted. And on the one hand, he, he fears God. He didn't, he didn't really love God, but he fears him. And so he doesn't dare do what he needs to do. But boy, does he want to. And you watch this man just struggle inside himself. What's happened here is Israel has come all the way up north now and is actually camped on the flat floodplain of the Jordan River. They are just on the east side of the river. So this is kind of, this is, this is really demonic in a way. They're, they're just about to enter their land. They're no problem anymore to Moab. They're clear down in the plains about to enter the land. But the king of Moab says, if we let these guys continue, they're going to they're gonna be like that ox that eats up all the grass. He says, we got to stamp them out now before they form a nation. And so he, caught, he, he forms a, a, a league with the Midianites. Now, the Midianites are a nomadic people. They do have an area, but they're nomadic tribes. But they're vicious. And they're a problem to Israel for, for years and years to come. That's who Gideon had to deal with, the Midianites. They'd come in and they raid people, steal all their stuff, and then go back and live in their tents. They're, they're violent. They're thugs, is what they are. It's a bunch of roving bands of thugs. And so the Moabite king and the Midianites form a league. But they look at them and they say, we're still not strong enough to attack Israel. What are we going to do? And they decide, we'll get a, a, a real prophet to cast a curse on them and, ha, and, and, and curse their power, and then we can attack them. So you got here, let's look at it about um, verse 5 of 22. I'll just read a few verses. He sent messengers to Baal, Balaam of son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river, that's the Euphrates, in the land of the sons of his people to call him, saying, behold, a people came out of Egypt. Uh, behold, they cover the surface of the land and they're living opposite me. Therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they're too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. So verse 7 so the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. They brought a lot of money. You have two, you have the Midianites and the king of Moab sending fees for divination. Clear to the Euphrates River for a guy that's really good. They're buying the best here. To bring him in to cast a curse. This is big money. And Balaam wants it. Man, does he want that money. So he says, well, spend the night and let me talk to God. He goes to God and God says, don't you dare curse my people. You can't curse my people. And so he says, well, I'm, you know, so he goes through this conflicted study. And they say, well, come back and check with us. So they get back to, and, and if you 
go with us to Israel, you can actually see these mountains. We, we drive right by them. You can see the mountains above the, the Jordan, plains of Jordan. You can see Moab. I mean, you look at it across the Dead Sea constantly. They're, so they go up on the peaks of these mountains, the very ones we see. And they're standing there looking down on these Jordanian, I mean, on, on the Jordan plains of the river, looking at a million, two million people. And they said, well, curse them. So Balaam says, I can't say anything God won't let me say. But he goes out there and he looks at them and then he opens his mouth and he blesses Israel. And, 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 the, and Balak the king and the Midianites are going, we're paying you to curse them, not bless them. He says, I can only say what God told me. They say, I told you that. They said, well, come over. Let's. And so they go down the mountain range a little ways. They said, this is a better place. Try here. <laughs> I'm not making this up. You need to read the story. And, and so, so they, they, he opens his mouth again and blesses Israel. They go, that is not what we're paying you for. Don't do that. Let's try another spot. So they go down here. They said, this is better. This is a good cursing spot. Try this one. It's got good vibes. And so... They, and he does it again. And so Balaam is really frustrated. They are too. But Balaam wants that money. What you need to know is Balaam got his money. Balaam got his money. He got his money another way. He counseled Balak on how to bring God's judgment on Israel. If you want to see this, it's... Uh, it's uh, I, didn't, I thought I wrote that down. It's 31, chapter 31, verse 16. Do I have it somewhere there? Okay, yes, I do. Excuse me. He counseled Balak on how to bring God's judgment on Israel. He told him as long as Israel was righteous, God would protect them. But he could get God to punish them by tempting Israel to sin. So Balak sent Midianite women near the Israelite camp to invite the men to join them in religious prostitution, which was part of the worship of Baal, of Peor. What happened? They sent their women down near the camp. They said, come on, join us in our worship of Baal, of Peor. And the men came over. What happened? Just what Balaam said would happen. God was furious and 24,000 people died in a plague. Balak could never have done that. Midian couldn't have pulled that off. But all you had to do is get his people to sin and bring them under judgment and they would be destroyed by God himself. That's what a Balaam does. A Balaam uses their prophetic gifts and their spiritual knowledge to actually undermine the resolve of God's people and break them down so that they fall under the judgment of God. And so Jesus says, you've got people who are prophets in your midst and they are Balaam's and they're bringing my judgment on you. Look, there's other references to this. This is actually a New Testament theme because they were dealing with this. Just briefly, look at 2 Peter chapter 2 a minute. 2 Peter, just before the letters to John. Chapter 2, verse 15. Listen to Peter. He picks this up. And he talks about these teachers who have eyes full of adultery. See, it's always sort of mixed with sex. 
and are greedy and want money. And he says, verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved what? Wages of unrighteousness, who wanted his money. They're using their spiritual gifts to gain money. Then look at Jude. Uh, just go to the, th- the three John, three letters of John, and Jude is right there, tucked away before the book of Revelation. This is Jesus' half-brother, by the way. Verse 11. Jude is saying the same thing. Verse 4, he said, certain people have crept in unnoticed, and he said they've turned the grace of God into licentiousness. In other words, they've built a theology that says, God's okay with this. He'll just forgive you and forgive you. And don't worry about it. And so people are going right ahead, boldly sinning because of grace. And, and, and then he says this, verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. What did Cain do? Killed his brother, remember? In other words, they're willing spiritually to kill their brothers and sisters. They're ruthless. Secondly, he says, and, they, and for, what? Pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, willing to use their spiritual gifts to mislead God's people and bring judgment on them, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. What did Korah do? He was willing to undermine godly authority. He was the one who challenged Moses, remember? He said, you're not the only prophet in town. Who says God only speaks through you, Moses? He speaks through me and these others. Who are you to be, think you're our leader? And Moses, you recall how he solved that. He said, well, let's just let God decide who's the leader. Uh, if, if you're the leader, fine. If I'm the leader, um, then may the ground open up and swallow you. <laughs> Wham! And that was the end of the discussion. But the point is, the point is that Korah challenged godly authority and defied it again for, for personal gain. What did Jesus want the church in Pergamon to do? He says, look, you've got, you've got Balaam stuff going in the midst, your midst. You're, you're corrupting my people and I'm going to bring my judgment on them. Notice back, let's go back to Revelation. I want you to look at verse uh, 16 there again. That's that odd verse we saw, chapter 2. He says, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I'll make war against them with a sword of my mouth. He tells the faithful believers in Pergamum that by being passive and refusing to discipline the Nicolaitans, they were putting them, the Nicolaitans, and those who might follow them in jeopardy. He wanted the faithful church to discipline them. He says, I have this against you. They're not doing this stuff. The Nicolaitans are. But the Nicolaitans are in their midst. It's a church where you've got people who are going into the temples and taking part in pagan worship, taking part in the sexual activities, and then showing up in church. Week after week after week, and no one's doing anything about it. I mean, come on, judge not lest you be judged. And I mean, let's just pray God will turn their hearts. And so they're just passively allowing this thing and it's spreading. And so Jesus says, if you won't do something about it, I will. But I'd rather you did. We'll get to that. 
What does he want him to do? He wants him to expose the lie, which is what he's doing in the letter here. Call it what it is. Speak out against it. Lies left unchallenged have a strong infectious power, don't they? You know, so often we say, I'm not going to say anything. Not my place to say anything. Well, you just let the lie go and lies have a power to them. They don't simply stop with the one person. They spread. And he says, speak the truth for heaven's sake. Don't assume that the high road is to stay silent and wait for God to act unilaterally. I've empowered you. You care for, your, care for the flock that's among you. Secondly, I want you to warn the deceived. This is what will happen to you if you don't repent. People need to understand there are repercussions for their actions. So at least they make an informed choice. Tell them the danger ahead of them. Please notice, Jesus will act. He will discipline. He's going to do something. I've, I, how many times I've had to do this? I guess I'll tell my story right now. This happened in another church long, long ago and far, far away. So you don't know anybody I'm talking about. Once upon a time, there was a woman in the church who, whose husband was in the Navy. Now, he wasn't her first husband. She had a, a, a beautiful nine-year-old boy by, I think, her original husband. This kid, by the way, was, he was a little athlete, good-looking little boy, and, and, and bright as he could be. Quiet, kind of self-contained. I mean, he had a lot of pizzazz. I mean, his mother's kind of loose at all ends. And I don't mean, forgive the way I said that. <laughs> I, I mean, uncontrolled. And her, but her boy was quite settled. There's something remarkable about, about him. But every time her, her husband is out on, on leave, or I mean on ship, she has other men in. Now, he's old. The boy's old enough now. He, I mean, at some point, we're putting two and two together here. <laughs> What's going on? And so it came to my attention. And, and I said to her uh, at one point, I said, look, I, this has got to stop. You, you can't keep doing this. And uh, I'm, I'm warning you. Well, I'll, have to, I'll have to do something. And I'll tell you, I was, I was new as a pastor, as a senior pastor, and I, I had never seen a church discipline anyone. I had never seen it done. So I, I called my superintendent, Tom Ferguson, who's a wonderful pastor. And I said, you ever discipline anybody? And he says, well, yeah. And he talked to me a little bit about how he had. He was the only guy I'd ever heard that did it. And so I went to her and I said, you, you must stop. Well, she didn't. She kept going. Every time he'd go off on leave, she'd have a man in. And so finally, I, I said, look, I'm going to put you outside the church. If you're going to, you're clearly, you're not going to repent, no. So I'm going to put you outside the church. And uh, you are, I want, and I tell her, you can't do this and go to heaven. Listen, I don't care what you think about grace. You can't do this and go to heaven. What comes out of your mouth and what your actions are are two different things. You can't do it. She says, well, fine, I'll just find another church. She's an American. <laughs> I said, well, be that as it may, you won't be at ours until you repent. Now, if you repent, you are welcome back, but not till then. 
Well, so she did what she said. She went to every other church in town by her own testimony. She called me, I think, a year plus later. And I get this call, and she says, Pastor, I have to come back. And I said, well, unless you stop your behavior, you can't come back. She says, I'm, I rep- I'm willing to stop. I, I repent of it. She said, I, I, I have to come back. I said, well, why? And she said, well, I've been to every church in town. And she said, I can't feel the Lord's presence. And he hasn't, he's left me. And she said, I can't stand this. I have to come back. And I said, well, do you repent? No more of this. Absolutely, I, I do repent. And she did and came back. That's what Jesus wanted done. And I want to show you something. We're going to talk about, here about the, the, the discipline. But would you notice something? I was not punishing her. Had nothing to do with punishment. We were, we were seeking to restore her, to bring repentance and restore the woman. That's the whole purpose of this. And the church in Pergamum was refusing to do that. And not just the elders. He's talking to everybody. They weren't doing anything about it with these people. They were just letting it happen. He wanted them to discipline the rebellious, remove them, set them outside the community of God's people. Some people say, well, if you put somebody like that outside the church, how will they hear the word of God? The only word of God they need to hear is repent. Everything else at this point in their rebellion is just hardening them and making them a Pharisee. If you don't have a surrendered heart, the word of God hardens you. It doesn't make you better. It makes you self-righteous and obnoxious. And he wanted them, of course, to restore the repentant. When church discipline is done properly, the person disciplined will often repent. And in most cases, be welcomed back into the fellowship of the church. I say most cases because some people can do something so bad, you have to do other things with them. But they are certainly being welcomed back to the Lord. How many times over the years have I had someone call me or write a letter? I can, I'm thinking right now of one. It was very moving. It had been several years since I'd seen this woman. And uh, she had been set outside the church. And then, then I actually had moved from the church. And I suddenly get a letter in my mailbox. And I open it up and it starts this. It says, Dear Pastor, thank you so much for loving me enough to do what you did. I, ha- I, 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 I understand my sin and I have repented of it. And I'm not doing it anymore. I wrote her back and I said, boy, I'm, nobody's happier to hear what you said. I, I assume what you mean is. <laughs> you are not in those circumstances at all. And you're, she wrote me back, absolutely not. And I said, then welcome back. And be blessed. And I'm so grateful. This is the fruit of it. This is the point of it. But it has to be done. Why must the church discipline? Discipline is an essential element for a church health. God uses it to warn those who are in jeopardy, as I've just described it. I have told people, I am warning you right now. That if you keep doing this, your soul is in jeopardy. Your spirit is in jeopardy. I don't believe you can go to heaven and keep it up. And someday you're going to stand before Jesus. And I am not going to have you point at me and say, well, my pastor never told me. I'm warning you. Blowing the trumpet. Do you hear me? I'm telling you. Blood's on your own head. (laughs) You can't point at me. I love you. I want you back. I want you to repent. But if you're going to keep this up, 
I told you. I warned you. Secondly, it's to encourage those who have chosen to be faithful to continue obeying. How many of you in, learning, in walking a holy life, a pure life, have experienced the fact that it's very difficult? That there's an awful lot of saying no to your body and saying no to your temper and saying no to your, your emotions. And, and, and you, man, you sweat bullets sometimes to be righteous and walk with the Lord. Yes? If you haven't, <laughs> let's have a talk. And what happens when people are sitting in church and they've been, they've been just walking with Jesus and paying the price for it and then there's people spread all through the congregation that are just flaunting the rules and nobody does anything about it. What does it do? It, it undermines the resolve of the people who are paying that price going, what am I, some kind of fool? I'm sitting here doing the thing and trying to walk by the things that Jesus has me, and they aren't and nobody seems to mind. The leaders, the elders, nobody in the church seems to care. Why am I bothering to pay the price? So you erode the hearts of the faithful. And you stop the spread of sin to others. When people begin this thing, there's, a, there's an anointing on them. When people begin to really flaunt the Lord, there's an anointing, but it's not the Holy Spirit. There's a power, there's, a, there's an energy to the thing, and, it, and when people are around it, when they hear of it, it begins to stir up things in them. It begins to stir a desire and, a, and, 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 and all kinds of things that it's, it's a tempting thing. And so the thing spreads, it has to be stopped. What areas must be disciplined? Everything, of course, is not categories for discipline. There are behaviors a church cannot allow to continue. There's others that certainly can. Cannot continue undisciplined. Scripture does give us a list. Here are several lists. And I don't think these lists are exhaustive, but they certainly give us a good idea of the sort of areas that are included. I'll show you one. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 9. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I have to stop here because I've heard people trying to undermine this verse saying this. Well, inherit the kingdom of God means you won't be blessed. It doesn't mean you won't go to heaven. Later on in the same book, chapter 15, Paul says, do you not know that flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God? What does he mean? You won't be resurrected and go to heaven. So let's put that nonsense to rest. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Won't go to heaven. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. That's a general term for all sorts of sexual misbehavior. Nor idolaters, people worshiping idols, false gods. Nor adulterers, people violating their marriage vows. Nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Now the terms Paul uses, in any, whether it be a, a, a male or a female form of homosexuality, there's a dominant partner and a passive partner. And he uses the terms for those two. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, that's verbal abuse, nor swindlers, that'd be business cheats, will inherit the kingdom of God. You can't do those things or con certainly continue doing those things and go to heaven. He says, don't kid yourself. Now, let's talk for a second 
about sex, because it's the one we always focus on. God is quite narrow in his thinking about this, and, and for a reason. God says, one man and one woman in marriage, and that's it. Whether it be homosexual sex, heterosexual sex, both of them will get you to the same place. Outside of that, it simply belongs there. Let me just amplify for a second. Why is he like this? Listen to me, your sexuality is a huge part of your life. It is a foundational part of your very makeup. There's no getting around it. And when sex is involved, our very, our very soul, our spirit opens up. And when you bond yourself with other people, whether through, whether through pictures, activities, it's not just formal time together. When that goes on, you, you are soul tied to people. And people open their heart and they trust you and they give this the most tender part of their being to you. And if there's no covenant to protect you that says for better, for worse, richer, for poor, sickness and in health, you can give me your heart. You can give me yourself at that deep level and I won't violate you. I will be faithful to you. In the safety of that marriage covenant, people can open up their sexuality. It can be expressed and be a beautiful thing. But you take it out of the safety of that thing and make it recreational. And you begin to attach yourself all over the place. It will tear you to shreds. And it does. I said to one young person the other day, I said, he was struggling with the idea of, of, of pornography. And I said, you know, give yourself to this. And I said, you're going to get weird. And I said, you get this icky thing all over you and you don't know you have it. And he says, kind of like smokers. You know, smokers smell, but they don't know it. But boy, we do. And people who give themselves to sex like this, you have an odor about you. Whether you know it or not. And often people are lonely and they want to be married and they walk around with this terrible odor. And, and the opposite sex goes, whoa, no. And so the very thing you want, you're driving away because you've entertained this vile spirit. And it's a form of worship. So it's really, this is a big deal. It's, God's not just a narrow-minded idiot that's sort of like, I'm just going to spoil all your fun and this is all I'll allow. He knows how he made you. And he says, this is how it's beautiful. This is where it's beautiful. This is where it's a lovely part of your life. And outside of it, it'll kill you. It'll eat you alive like a disease. So keep it there. He's not being cruel. He's not being arbitrary. He's not foolish. He knows, he knows something that we don't. I want to make a distinction here. There is a, because there's a big difference between stumbling in a sin and practicing a sin. 1 John 3, 9 says, no one who is born of God practices. Now, it doesn't use the word practice. It just uses the present tense, sins in the present tense. But in the Greek, the present tense of a language shows continuous action. Whereas another tense shows what's called punctiliar, just one action and just one and it's over. But the present tense shows ongoing action. No one who is born of God ongoingly sins because his seed, the Holy Spirit, abides in him. 
And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Has that verse ever bothered you? You thought, well, I must not be born of God because I, I sin, you know, somewhat regularly. So I'm clearly lost. I want, I want to draw this out for a second. A true believer, what, what, what John is saying is those who are born again do not continue to practice this. They don't stay in it. Why? Three important reasons. One is they have a sensitive conscience. Two, they have the will to obey. They want to obey the Lord. And three, the power of the Holy Spirit is given to them. And sooner or later, they'll learn to use the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? But there are different remedies and the same discipline. I've talked to you about the extreme cases. But there are different remedies for different levels of this, of, of this involvement. First of all, there are people who don't yet know it's wrong. We've got people that come to the Lord and they don't have a clue it's wrong. You know? And you don't beat up on them and say, yeah, we're going to, you know, you don't have the kind of discussion I've talked about with them. I'll, we'll often give, depending on what it is, but give people quite a lot of space, hoping the Holy Spirit will tell them, and we don't have to have one of these parental discussions. We'd rather the Lord told you. It's far better. So we give time to people. There's a grace in this. There are weak people who are trying to obey, but haven't yet learned how to live victoriously. They don't want to do this. They know it's wrong. They're trying desperately, but have not learned the skills of walking in freedom. Because there is a skill to it. There's a way to lay hold of God that you have to learn. There are people who don't want to stop, but still acknowledge that God's laws are right. They're the ones that say, I know it's wrong, God, you know, but I like it. And so they say, I'll stop before I die. Hopefully your timing is good on that. <laughs> and so they sort of game in it, you know, because it's really, it's the, they love this. I mean, this is precious to them. They want to they enjoy it. They don't, see the, they don't see the poison in it yet. There are people who don't want to stop and decide to change the rules so that they can practice their behavior, that behavior without feeling guilty. They're the ones that say the Bible doesn't really say that's wrong. You just misinterpreted it. Ever heard that? What they're trying to do is change the rules so they don't feel guilty. They're tired of the guilt. And so they want to change the rules. There are people who don't want to stop and angrily dare God to stop them. I'm going to do this. I don't care. I'm doing it. There are people who don't want to stop and declare God doesn't exist. So they'll never be punished for what they're doing anyway. That's the angry atheist. Look, there is, I, 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 I'm going to do this thing, and, and frankly, there's no God, so I don't, there's no hell, there's no judgment, there's no punishment, so I'm going to die and rot, and the worms are going to eat me, but he's, you're going to die and rot, and the worms are going to eat you too, and I've had more fun till I get there. So they make a virtue out of it. I'm just using all I got while I got it. Carpe diem, seize the day. You know, maximize your pleasure because the worms are going to eat you. And boy, do they hope there's no God. Ooh-hoo. Because they're gaming the system. How should discipline be done? Jesus gives us a, a clear way. A very clear and simple process to follow and told us we have the authority to carry it out. Look, go with me to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 15. 
I'll read 15 down to, I'll just read 18. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, tell, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will, shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Well, what's his process? Verse 15, first of all, he says, if your brother sins, what's, what am I supposed to do? What's the next word? Go. Say go. Yeah, don't be passive. Don't be passive. And notice it's not the elders get to go, pastors get to go, kind of thing. He says, if you see your brother sin, if you're, go. You. You who know about it. You're responsible for your brothers and your sisters. Verse 16. The first step is to speak to the person in private, one-on-one. -on -one. You don't go and gossip about them. You don't talk about them. You don't ask for prayer about them. Unless you have a, that's a terrible gossip technique for a lot of Christians. If you have a mature someone who really will pray, you may discuss it with them and say, I'm going to go talk to this person. Would you pray with me? That's certainly a responsible behavior. But you don't go spreading it around. You go privately. That's what this was. You privately, one-on-one, -on -one, have a brotherly or a sisterly appeal. Talk to me, I'm seeing this. And you don't do it on, on everything you don't like about them. You do it on these categories we've just looked at. You can read my li the lists there, not mine, Jesus and Paul's. Look at the lists, and if you've got a checklist here and it's one of those areas, then you go and you say, I'm seeing this. Is it, am I seeing right? What's going on here? And you have an appeal, brotherly or sisterly appeal. Secondly, or thirdly, Verse 16, then, if they say no to that and continue or whatever, two or more confront the person and insist on repentance. And it doesn't say, it's not talking about, it doesn't say elders or anything else, just two, more, two or more believers who know what's going on. You go talk to your brother. You go talk to your sister. And you appeal. And you also bear witness. They're, they're also kind of helping you assess this. Are you, are you reading this right? See, are you... Are, are, is this, uh, do they agree that we really have a problem here? Then again, if this fails, they report the situation to the elders of the church. That's what it means, tell it to the church. Doesn't mean stand in front of a crowd and humiliate the person publicly. Uh, that's, a, that's, that's punishment as far as I can see. What's the point of announcing it to a great mass of people who don't necessarily know the person? Not saying that. Tell the elders. Now we bring the heat in. Tell the pastors, you go to the church. And indeed, I think it's appropriate to warn the people who know this person well and are very aware of what's going on. Say, we're, we're, we're ministering here, pray with us, but we're dealing with it. Finally, if the person still refuses in all of that, you remove the person. That's what he means, Gentile and tax collector. I've heard a lot of nice things said about that. You know, it means pray for them, love them, da, da, da. Certainly, but it means set them outside. They're not part of the fellowship prophetically setting them outside the community of those who are being saved. You're prophetically saying, you're not among us anymore. You're not in the family anymore. You set yourself by your own stubbornness. 
We've appealed to you. We love you. But you won't stay. So we're putting you out. It's a prophetic action. Now, the next verse is remarkable. Verse 18. It follows. Jesus says, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And I want you to go to, to John 20, chapter 20, verse 23. Because he says, in effect, the same thing here. He's resurrected now. The disciples are gathered. It's one of those probably where the door's locked and he shows up in the midst of them. And notice what he does. The first thing he says is shalom. And then he says, if the Father has sent me, I send you. I'm empowering you as my ambassadors. And then he breathed on them. And said, receive the Holy Spirit. He's gracing them with the Spirit of God. And here's what he says. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Isn't that amazing? Is he giving some arbitrary power? What's he doing with this? He's saying to them what we've been talking about. As you care for my people. As you, when, when you forgive someone, I will honor your authority. I will forgive them. If you retain the sins of any in discipline, as we've just spoken. See, when you set someone out, you're, you're, you're retaining their sins in a sense. Saying, God... We ask you to deal with them. We ask you to deal with them. They're not repentant. Not to say, we're going to just, it's our power to somehow cast you into, into eternal darkness. It's none of that. It's discipline. And it's always meant to save people, to restore people. It's the, it's the authority to minister to the flock. We set you outside. And God will deal with them. He will honor your authority. Now, how about the forgiving part? Just this a few weeks ago, I remember, I had someone come in who was not a believer but wanted to talk about God and particularly needed some prayer for a personal matter. And we discussed God, and I, I, I don't, you know, I didn't, I, don't, I did my best, and I don't think I convinced him. Um, but at the end, he wanted to be prayed for. And I, I put my hands on him and said, all right, I'll pray for you. And then I said, now, forgive me, but I'm a Pentecostal. I'm going to pray in another language. And went into one. But what have I got to lose? <laughs> uh, and I needed help. And you know what the Lord said to me while I was praying? He said, he whose sins you forgive. Actually, he used the King James. Whose sins you remit. <laughs> Don't take a theology out of that. Just, he did. I mean, to that, that's, he did. He whose sins you remit shall be remitted. And I knew what he was telling me. You forgive the sins of this man. And you ask my grace upon him. He's not asking for forgiveness. He's not asking. I don't even say he believes in God. God, it's not, that's not the discussion. I, as a as, 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 as Christian disciple, have been given this authority. And the Lord just told me, remit his sins. So I, and I actually told him, I maybe tell you what the Lord just said. And I said, I'm going to pray for you now that the grace and blessing of the Lord will come upon you. That the Lord has, will totally forgive your sins. And I prayed that. 
I guarantee you God will do something. Do you understand this? This is not some foolishness. You have this authority. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, whose sins you remit shall be remitted, whose sins you retain shall be retained, not to toy with them, not to hurt them, to save them, to do everything in your power to reach out that they might be brought to Christ. But it's real authority. And the Lord honors your prayer as you seek his mind. Now, one more thing, and we've got to get it in here. It's very good. Galatians 6, verse 1. Paul tells us the attitude in which this should be exercised. He says, brethren, Galatians 6, verse 1. If, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, what? In a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. We are to be gentle and humble when this is done. You follow that? Gentle meaning keep the door open to return. You don't, you're never trying to punish someone or beat them up. You're trying to appeal to them and leave the door open. Many, so often I've said to people, now listen, I'm setting you outside, but we love you. We want you back. And I'll say this. I'm not going to talk about this to anybody else. Unless, of course, you do. And if you spin this thing, I will speak the truth. I don't believe in letting a lie sit. So count on it. I'll talk if you do. But if you keep your mouth shut, I will too. And I'll tell you why. Because I want you back. I want you to be able to come back and be in our fellowship. We want you back. And I say that. Very clearly. They're not being punished. They're being appealed to. They're the ones who've chosen this course. We haven't. They're the ones inflicting this. We haven't. They've made this necessary. We haven't. And when you come back, you're welcome. You show respect. Even if, no matter what they're doing, you show respect and you're gentle. And then he says, and this is big. He says, with humility. He says, with an eye to yourself, lest you too be tempted. If we become proud, God will let us be tempted by the same temptation. And that ought to be very sobering. Have you not watched some of these very self-righteous preachers who just rail against people on various sins? And what often happens? They fall. Don't they? God, God will only put up with that pride so much. And he says, you're so good, are you? Well, let me... Just let you experience the temptation. See how you do, big guy. And down they go like a thundering heap. You don't, you don't sit there and say, now, I'm good and I'm righteous. I just can't believe people like you. I don't know what you would, how did you dare do this? You don't do that. You appeal to them as a brother in love and humbly with respect and ask them to repent. And you watch how many will. Because the Lord has his ways of making that sin go dust in their mouth and gravel in their teeth. They begin, after a while, they begin to hate it. And when they know they're welcome back, they say, can I call you up? They say, can I, can I come back? Can I come back? Yes, you can. I know people in ministry have gone through this. And God brought them back. It's very powerful. Now, this is the last point, but listen, it's good. 
Meanwhile, having said all of this, meanwhile, every time we hear the word of God preached or worship or take communion, we are being gently disciplined by the Holy Spirit. Aren't we? Doesn't he talk to you about stuff and attitudes? Last night, last night, I, uh, before the first service, I said something, believe it or not, cranky in the, in the meeting with, and I had another pastor in the room in my office, and I was complaining about something, just the way I said it. I didn't, it wasn't, I, it was mean, spirited in the way I did it. Not to him even, I wasn't angry at him. Just, just said it kind of a nasty tone. And I'm sitting there, and, and the Holy Spirit says, and because he was sitting next to me, and he said, apologize for that. Okay. So I leaned over and I said, would you forgive me? I said, I, I just, the way I spoke at the tone, my frustration came through and it was, it was, in, it was unnecessary. It was proud. Would you forgive me? I certainly forgive you. I said, thank you. Then I went up and took communion. Listen to me. I would far rather discipline myself than have God have to do it. That's what worship and that's what the word and that's what communion provides. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 31, I give you the reference. For if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. We can do this for ourselves and never have to go anywhere close to having him deal with us like that. Amen. Would you stand with me? Would you just bow your heads one moment? I'm not going to take long at this, but to have said it all, it just seems to me that some of you here may say, as I even spoke that last statement, it's a lot easier to judge myself and simply realize, take the responsibility to, to humble myself and repent and evaluate it before the Lord, then have him have to somehow discipline me. Anyone here want to say, you know, as I'm listening, I make that choice too. I've got an area, and I'm going to handle it before the Lord. I'm going to, I'm going to repent. I'm going to let him guide me and show me how to walk free of this. He does not have to somehow deal with me. I get it. I get it. I'm, I'm saving myself the trouble right now. I, Lord, acknowledge, and I repent before you. And we'll seek you. Would you just lift your hand before the Lord if that's you. Father, see our hands. What a grace you give us. If we would judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. And Lord, today, I just thank you for the Holy Spirit speaking to all of us. And we respond with tender hearts. Some of us are in that category. We don't know how to stop. We don't know how to get freedom here. But we ask now, Lord, as we repent of this, that you will teach us real, positive, active steps of walking free so that we can obey you in all areas of our life. Know us, know this, Lord. You have a, a humble child. You have a yielded child who loves you and wants to please you. Grace us now with your spirit and your presence. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.